Good morning. Hey. <laughs> you never clap before a message, man. You never clap before a message. I may keep you here 45 minutes. You won't be clapping then, will you? All right. Good morning. It's good to be here. As um, Robert mentioned earlier, Pastor Crosby's out of town, and, and um, he asked me to fill in for him. Now, for the past... For the past four weeks, Pastor Crosby's been talking about four cardinal virtues. He's been talking about four cardinal virtues. And in the weeks to come, I hope you saw in your worship guide, you had an insert. Um, and in the weeks to come, he's going to be talking about death in view. Right? Oh, yeah, children. Sorry about this. See, I'm new to this. Children, if you, if you want to go to children's worship, you can come right down here to the front or over there to the front. I'm confused now. Either way. All right. Both sides. Um, in the coming weeks, he's going to be talking about uh, a new series. He's going to be talking about death in view. So the cardinal virtues, death in view. With me squashed here in the middle, I thought we'd talk about um, another serious topic. I thought we'd talk about tricycles this morning. And so I even brought a tricycle to show you guys. And as far as I know, tricycles aren't anywhere in the Bible. Now, you biblical scholars, maybe you could show me where a tricycle is mentioned. But as far as I know, they're not anywhere in the Bible. But what's interesting about tricycles is that in some ways, this tricycle in particular is a lot like the church. It's a lot like the church because somewhere written in the fine print of both this tricycle and the church are two of the most dreaded words in the English language, assembly required. It it almost makes me shudder just to think about hearing those words, assembly required. Nobody likes to put things together. So if you've got your your Bible this morning, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 got your iPhone. I use my iPhone a lot here lately or an iPad or something along those lines. Ephesians chapter 4. Assembly required, whether it's the tricycle or the church. Now the book of Ephesus is written by a guy named Paul who wrote a lot in the New Testament. Um, He's actually writing from prison here and you're going to see that at the beginning of chapter 4. What's interesting about Ephesians is that unlike many of the other letters that Paul wrote, it doesn't really hone in on it. It doesn't really get specific about a certain false teaching or a certain false practice. A lot of times when Paul's writing these churches, he's got a specific false teaching in mind that he's really trying to combat, or he's got a false practice that he's trying to tell them, listen, you're doing this wrong. But Ephesians is a little different. Ephesians is just kind of general instruction. So when he talks about the church in chapter four, which is, you know, kind of his point of emphasis in chapter four, when he talks about the church, he's not telling them, listen, you're doing all this stuff wrong. You've got to change it. What he's telling them is listen or look at the way the church could be. Look, look at what it could be. If you do it right, if you do it right, not, don't worry about what you're doing wrong. We're not talking about that. But if you do the church right, this is what it could look like. This is what it should look like. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 1. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord. All right, this is Paul talking. He's a prisoner. Like I told you, he's writing from prison. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, in just a second, we're going to come back to that because Paul kind of assumes that we know what this calling is, all right? He's not going to talk about the calling as much in chapter four. He's saying, listen, let me urge you to live according to this calling. Let me urge you to live up to this calling that you've received. And then he goes on to tell them kind of how that's going to work. But we'll come back to that in just a second. Verse two, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity. And this is going to be a central focus of this passage Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, 
One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All right, so this unity thing's a big deal to him. Then he goes on to say, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he tells us grace has been given by God. And then he's going to go on to explain why or why he thinks this grace has been apportioned by Christ or where he sees this in the Old Testament. And he quotes a passage from Psalms here. He says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Then he's going to kind of do a little paraphrase and explain what that means. He said, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, talking about Jesus, the incarnation, him coming as a man to earth. Then he says, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It's the whole reason for this period of Lent that we have right now, for, for the resurrection that's coming up. This is what Jesus did. Then he goes on to say what this grace that God has given us, what this grace Christ has given us is. He says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If we do that, he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. This morning, there are five observations, five things about the church that I don't think we can afford to miss. And the first thing is that remaining in the box is not really an option. Remaining in the box is not really an option. I don't know about y'all, but when I get something like this tricycle and on it, I find the words assembly required, I'm always tempted just to leave it inside the box. I'm always tempted just to leave it inside the box because look how neat and clean this box is. You know what I mean? This box can fit anywhere. I could put it in my garage. I could put it on a shelf. I'm even thinking that maybe if I can just leave it in the box, usually it's not a tricycle, it's something for our house, but maybe if I can just leave it inside the box, my wife will forget about it. I can take it back later and get our money back. You know, there are a lot of great things about leaving it inside the box. Because I know as soon as I open this, as soon as I open the box, I'm never getting those pieces back in. I don't know about y'all, but when, when you read instructions a lot of times for something like this, you always think, man, these guys were not that smart. They were making these instructions. But every time I take the contents out of the box, the one thought that comes to my mind is, these guys that pack these boxes are absolute geniuses, all right? They get so much stuff in here that when I dump it out, I can never get it back in the same way. You know what I mean? If I take it out, it's not going back in this box. It's going to take another box too, all right, so I know it's never going back in. And I know, man, if I take it out, what if, what if I drop a piece on the ground and I come by with a vacuum cleaner and scoop up a piece? Then I'm missing a piece. I'm not going to be able to put together the tricycle. I can't really take it back now because it's missing a piece. There's a lot of danger outside the box. So I always think, well, maybe I should just play it conservative. You know, I may never experience what this tricycle was meant to be. I may never experience the way it was made or, or how it was supposed to work. But at least I've still got my pieces. At least I've still got my box. At least everything is still in there and it's neat and it's clean. But when we look at the passage that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, what we realize is that for the church, remaining in the box is not really an option. Let's look back. We're actually going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 10. I told you just a second ago that we would return to Ephesians chapter 4.1. See, in 4.1 we get this 
we get this direction from Paul and he's urging us to live a life worthy of the calling that we received. And he assumes that we know what this calling is. And, and when you look back in Ephesians, there are multiple things that we can point to that you could say, man, this is the calling. This is the calling that Paul's talking about. But the one that's the closest and the one that makes most sense to me is actually found in Ephesians chapter 10. I mean, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So if you're at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, I'll, I'll tell you, in 8 and 9, Paul's talking about his personal calling. And he's talking about going to the Gentiles and telling them the gospel and how this is this great mystery that, that God has now opened himself up to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. But then he gets to our calling and he says his intent was that now, and he's talking about God here. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His intention was that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to Paul right here, our job, our job is to go out into the world and to make the name of God great. To make the name of God great. Our job is to go out there and to make people know that this God that we serve is a wise God. And in effect, we're God's representatives, not only in this world, what Paul says, which is kind of, which is kind of crazy because we, we don't even understand how this works. We're not just God's representatives in this world. We're God's representatives to all creation, to all created beings, even beyond this world. We represent God. Our job is to make his name great by what we do. And so in essence, our job is to go out into the world that we live and to make other people say, when they look at us, to make other people say, man, that God that the people at FBNO serve, he must be a pretty great God. That God that the people at FBNO worship, that they, they go every Sunday and they worship this God, that God that they say they serve, he must be a pretty great God. Because look at the way that they love each other. Look at the way they love their family and their friends. Look at the way they serve their coworkers. Look at the way they care for people that they don't even know. That God that they worship, that God that they serve, he must be an amazing God. That's our job. That's our calling. And the cool thing is we don't just see it here in Ephesians. As a matter of fact, if you look in Matthew 5, one of the most kind of familiar tracts of Scripture right there, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has pulled his disciples together and he's talking to them and he tells them, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. He says a city on a hill can't be hidden. And then he tells them, would you ever put a bowl over a lamp? Would you ever put a bowl over a lamp? If you've got a, if you've got a bowl, if you've got a light, would you ever put a bowl over it? No, you wouldn't. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the calling that Paul's talking about in Ephesians. This is the calling he's talking about. But no matter how great our calling, we're always going to be tempted just to remain inside the box. We're always going to be tempted just to stay inside this building because inside this building, everything's so neat and clean, right? It's not, it's not very messy inside this building. Inside this building, the answer is always Jesus, so we feel like we can always, you know, we always have something there. You know, inside this building, the schedule is usually kept. Why can't we just remain inside the box? Because the Bible is undeniably clear that the mission, the mission of the church is not in here. God's intentions for the church are not here, they're out there. One of the things that, that we're constantly saying here at First Baptist New Orleans is that we gather to go to the need. We gather to go to the need. And I hope you've heard that recently as we, as we talk about this as a staff. We're always thinking about this statement. 
And what this statement means is that we don't believe, we don't believe that God's intentions for the church are completely fulfilled when we come in here on Sunday morning. We don't believe that when we walk through these doors, that everything has come to completion, that man, this is it, we've arrived, this is God's intention for the church, we're here every Sunday. We don't believe that's complete fulfillment of God's intention. We believe that we gather here, we gather here once a week, every week, we gather here so that we can go out there and lift the name of God high. We believe that we gather here so that we can glorify God out there. You see, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the obedience of the church is measured far more by what we do out there than what we do in here. So if we want to be a part of God's great intention for the church, if we want to be a part of God's calling for the church, we've got to think and act outside the box. Remaining in the box, remaining in the box is not really an option. The second thing I think we need to see is that in the beginning, the pieces don't really look like the picture. You see, we know we can't remain in the box. We know we can't remain in the box. We just learned that. So what do we do? We open the box because if this tricycle is ever going to be what it needs to be, if it's ever going to do what it was created to do, we've got to open the box and we've got to take the pieces out. But when I take the pieces out, when I empty the contents of the box, one of the first things I realize is that the pieces don't really look like the picture, right? The pieces don't really look like the picture. If I showed you this without having seen this box and I said, what is this? You'd be like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that goes to, right? The pieces don't really look like the picture. There's a lot of different pieces. You know, we've got different colors. It looks like they have different functions. But in the beginning, individually, they don't really look like the picture. And the same thing is true about us as a church. I mean, if you look around, what you'll see is that we're an extremely diverse group. We're an extremely diverse group. We're young. We're old. We're suits. We're jeans. We're big. We're small. We're apples. We're PCs. We've got varying skills and, and expertise You know, we're we're doctors and lawyers and store clerks and students and managers and builders and bankers and, and so on and so on and so on. The pieces are incredibly diverse. The pieces are in abundance. But when you open the doors of this church and you spread us out on the table of this city, often the pieces don't really look like the picture. Because the picture that we see in Ephesians 3 is of a church, of a movement, of a community so influential and powerful that it permeates society and that it changes our world. That it changes our world. That's what the picture is. The picture is like a drop of food coloring in a glass of water, right? It changes everything. But often when I look at my individual life, when I look at me out there in the world, I feel a little bit more like a drop of oil in a glass of water than I do a drop of food coloring. Because when I look at my life, I don't always see the potential for influence. When I look at my life, I don't always see the picture. I look at myself and I say, what impact can I really have? I'm living in a city where no one even knows my name. What what impact can I really have? You see, we know that remaining in the box is not an option. But can all of these pieces that don't really look anything like the picture really make a difference in our culture? Can they really change our city? Can it really do anything to the world that we live in? Paul says yes, and if we look back in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, he says yes, but he says you got to put them together. You got to put them together. Let's look back in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read 1 through 6 one more time. Can the pieces really make a difference? 
Once again, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Then he goes from there. He's kind of going to tell us how this works. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And those are just descriptions of what he really, the, the descriptions of how we act in order to reach the finale, in order to reach the fulfillment of God's intention. Then he tells us, and this is the crux of the whole passage that he writes. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says the pieces that don't really look like the picture in the beginning, they can make a difference in your culture, but you've got to put them together. You've got to put them together. And we think, well, Paul, that's great. I I appreciate that instruction. That's good instruction. But it's not that simple. I mean, we, we come from different backgrounds. We live in different places. We look different. We feel different. We think different. How in the world are we going to take this group of people that is so different and ever put this thing together? How are we ever going to be considered one unit? It just seems impossible. How are we ever going to be considered one body? How is that going to happen? Well, when you have something like a tricycle and you've got the pieces on the table, what do you ever really need to put something together? You need tools. You need tools. Because the truth is, if all we have are the pieces and my hand standing up here, this tricycle is never going to get put together. Now, some of you guys out there, I know you're pretty handy. And if all you have were your hands and the pieces, you could probably make this thing work. But I need the tools. Namely, I need instructions, which are probably the most important tool to have when you're putting something together. I need instructions. The box says, I need a screwdriver. I need a hammer. And I think Paul says the same thing in Ephesians because when you look down at verse 7, and I'm just going to look at verse 7 briefly and then we're going to go to verse 11. When you look down at verse 7, it's like he almost sees that coming, this idea of how are we going to put this thing together? And he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So grace has been given to us. He says, listen, I know this seems difficult. I know this seems hard. But what you got to understand is, is God, Christ, has given you grace. He's given you unmerited favor. He's given you something that you need to do this. He hasn't left you alone in this thing. And if we jump down to verse 11, we're going to find out what those tools are that he's given us. It says, it was he, talking about Jesus. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So, so what are these tools that God has given us? They're people, right? He's given us people as tools. And then he says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul doesn't just say that you need tools to put this thing together. Paul says the right tools, the right tools are on the table. Now, when we look at that passage and we look at at verse 11, at first glance, how many tools does it look like Paul's given us? How many tools does it look like Paul's given us when you look at that passage? How many people, how many different groups of people? It looks like five, right? You've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But when you take a closer look at that passage and you look at that indefinite article of some, what you realize is that Paul is really only making a difference in four different groups. There's four groupings here. There's apostles, Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Some to be pastors and teachers. This final grouping, these two words, what we think are different things, really seem to be the same. As a matter of fact, some people have argued 
then instead of having the word and there, that we should really just take that out and just squish those two words together. Even though and is there in the Greek, squish them together so that we get the idea of what Paul's saying and just call it pastor teachers. And this is the group I want to focus on this morning, just really briefly. And the reason I want to focus on this group, this tool that God has given us, is because number one, I think it is absolutely essential to the building up of this church. This tool, we can't do without it. We can't do what God intends for us to do in this world without it. And number two, and probably even more importantly, it's right here on the table. It's right here in front of us. It's right here available. Did you know that within, within this church, within this body of believers, that there are nearly 50 people every week that are called to this area of service? Every week, just for adults. I'm not even talking about the, the people that serve in this capacity for kids or for youth. Just for adults, there are nearly 50 people that are called to be pastors and teachers. But we really don't call them that. We call them small group leaders. But what I want you to know is we very much think of these people as pastors and teachers given to us by God to build up the church. Now, some of you are probably thinking out there, what in the world is, what does pastor teacher even mean? What does it even mean? And most of us, teacher is not a big problem for us, right? Teacher is pretty easy. You know, teacher is just somebody who, who teaches something, right? But what does this word pastor mean? I thought pastor is what we called Dr. Crosby. I thought pastor was somebody who was paid to lead the church. Isn't that what pastor means? When the Bible, what we find out it's this word that's translated pastor here actually means shepherd. It actually means shepherd. Now, the role of a shepherd is not all that complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. The role of the shepherd is one thing, to care for the sheep, to care for the sheep. Whether that means guiding, protecting, feeding, sheltering, whatever that is, the role of the shepherd is to care for the sheep. And so when we talk about small group leaders here at First Baptist New Orleans, what I don't want you to think about are lecturers, I don't want you to think in your mind, oh, those are lecturers intent on testing my biblical knowledge, right? Those are lecturers intent on giving me a grade. They're gonna, they're gonna get me in their class on Sunday morning or, or in their home on a weeknight or wherever it may be. They're gonna get me there and then they're gonna say, man, you must have missed third through fifth grade because you missed the whole Noah's Ark thing. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not what our small group leaders are here for. These aren't people for you to avoid. Our small group leaders are God's gift to you and they're God's gift to me to build us up and to form us into a church that can go out in that world and lift the name of God high. That's what our small group leaders are here for. That's what they do. That's what they're all about. Our problem is that we often miss the difference that the right tool can make. We miss the difference that the right tool can make. Now, just by a show of hands, and we'll see who's really paying attention here, who in here uses stainless steel cookware? Anybody? Stainless steel cookware? I see a few hands coming up, a few hands, a few hands. Ah, uh, maybe half of us or something like that. I got married about two and a half years ago. And before that, I was engaged. And when you, when you do this whole engagement thing, it, it, it's the craziest thing in the world. You get to pick out all this stuff that other people will buy for you. And I say we get to pick out. It was mostly Rachel getting to do most of the picking out. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was, was our cookware. What kind of cookware do we want? There's different kinds, right? You've got Teflon, you've got stainless, you've got other kinds. I don't really know their names, but there's other kinds of cookware. But during that time, everybody was telling us, you need to go with stainless. You need to go with stainless. Stainless steel is where it's at. So we were like, man, they must be right. We're going to get stainless. So we get stainless. And let me tell you, stainless steel cookware almost ruined our marriage in like the first six months we were married, okay? Because we got, we got this, and maybe not even for the reason that you're thinking, but we got this stainless steel cookware, 
And we cooked on it, and Rachel, Rachel did most of the cooking, but we would cook on it, and then I would do the cleaning afterwards, and, and I would just scrub and scrub and scrub, and I could not get this food out of the bottom of this cookware. I would get 99% of it. There would always be like a little residue. It would always be a little residue. And I would scrub pretty hard, and so sometimes when, when Rachel would do the cleaning, maybe if I was cooking, or maybe she would cook, and she would do the cleaning or something like that, she was cleaning. She couldn't quite scrub as hard as me, so she would even leave a little more residue than I would leave. And over time, I would get where I would check up on Rachel. I'd check behind her and say, you didn't really scrub that hard enough, man. You've got to scrub that harder next time. And I got where I didn't even want to use this stainless steel cookware. I didn't even want to cook because I was like, man, this stuff is getting ruined. Who told us to use stainless steel cookware? Why is this stuff good? But then I discovered God's gift to stainless cookware. It's called steel wool. Now, I don't know if any of y'all have ever used steel wool But steel wool makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. You can use steel wool and in like five seconds, that thing is clean. It's the most amazing thing for steel cookware. I'm telling you, if you haven't used it and you're like, man, I got this stainless steel cookware. Maybe you're newly married. I can't figure out how to clean it. Steel wool. I should have known that. My parents used it, but I didn't do a lot of dishwashing growing up. Mostly dishwashering, putting in the dishwasher. Um, But anyway, the right tool can make all the difference. It really can. And I believe, I believe that we have all the tools we need. We have the right tools here at First Baptist New Orleans to turn us into a church, into a community, into a body of believers that goes out into our world, that changes everything, that shakes up our culture, and that lifts the name of God high, that glorifies God. I believe that the right tools are on the table Not only the right tools are on the table, but we have an expert operator. We have an expert operator. Let's look back. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 14. He says, if you use the right tools, if you allow them to equip you, if you get built up together, he says, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So if you use the tools, this is what you're going to be. You're not going to be infants anymore. You're going to, you're going to progress. You're going to grow. You're going to be built up. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things, and this is, this is where it's at, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Not only do we have the right tools, we've got an expert operator. If we can get this thing built up, Christ is the head. Now, as humans, it's just built into our DNA. I think this was just part of the fall. But operator error is just something that we've learned to live with, right? Chances are, even if I can put this thing together, even if I can put this tricycle together, chances are, if I try to operate this thing, good things probably aren't going to happen, right? But it's not because of the tricycle. The tricycle w- would have been built completely. It would have had all the right pieces. The right tools would have been in place. It would have been built up. But because of operator error, operator error. Now, I want to show you some pictures of just some operator error that takes place with tricycles. And so we're going to throw some up there. See, this to me is not what a tricycle was made for, right? That guy is not the right size for this tricycle. Go ahead to some more. It gets a little more outrageous as we go along. I don't know if you can see this, but this is a van pulling three tricycles. Looks like a piece of cloth that they're holding onto and they're riding behind a van. Now, it's just not a good idea. Look at all these guys right here, all lined up, 
you see they got knee pads on and stuff like that? That's because of operator errors, not because tricycles were made to wreck. It's because it's going to happen. Now, bicycles, too. Look at this. It's probably not the best idea in the world, right? That's what you call operator error is what I would call that. Um, and if you keep going, you'll see others. Look at, <laughs> look at this guy. A, a bicycle is not made to be ridden with, a, with an umbrella, all right? That's operator error. And then here, bicycle jousting. Not what I would call um, what these bicycles were made for, I don't, I don't think. So as you can tell, operator error is a big part of our lives. But when it comes to the church, operator error is not something we really have to worry about. Because if we get this thing put together, if we get this thing built up, if we grow into a unit, into a community, Christ is the head and Christ is running it and Christ is directing it and Christ is the one who can come with power and who can come with influence and who can actually make something happen where we live. He can make something happen in our world. We have an expert operator. This morning, I started out with a box and it was a nice, neat, clean box. And even though I wanted to keep the pieces inside the box, I knew that if I kept them in there, this tricycle would never be what it was created to be. I would never experience this tricycle as it was created to be experienced. And so I took the pieces out. And for the last 30 minutes, these pieces have been sitting on the table. I've been standing right here. I've been looking at them. These pieces have been sitting right here in front of me. I've got all the right tools. Let's just pretend that we don't have to worry about operator error. Maybe instead of me operating, I can get my nephew to come down here and drive it. I'm sure he could do it better than me. Why in the world do I not have a tricycle? Why in the world don't I have a tricycle? I've got the tools. I've got the pieces. I don't have to worry about operator error. Why is somebody not breezing up and down the aisles right now on this tricycle? Two words, assembly required. Assembly required. Paul's desire for the church at Ephesus is clear in Ephesians chapter four. He says, be united, be together, be put together, be a community, be one as much as it is possible, be one. Why? So that you can go out there and be who God intended you to be. You can go out there with power and with influence. You can make a difference in your world. And you know what? God can be glorified through what you do. But you need to be put together. You need to be put together. And you know the thing about assembly? It's not always easy. It's not always easy. It's definitely never convenient. That's probably the worst thing. Assembly's never convenient. There's never a time where you really just say, man, I would really love to put that tricycle together right now. You know what I mean? I'd really love to do that. It takes time. It takes commitment. But when it comes to the church... Being what God intended for the church to be, assembly is absolutely required. There is no substitute. Now here at First Baptist New Orleans, we're always, or, or, or recently especially, we've been talking a lot about moving people from rows to circles. From rows to circles. And the reason we want to move you from where you're at right now, this morning, in that row, to a circle, the reason we want to move you to a smaller group than where you're at right now is because we honestly believe that the assembly that is required of the church happens in small groups. That's where it takes place. If you move from where you're sitting right now in a row and then you go to a small group at 1045 or you go to a small group in somebody's home during the week, you are way more likely to find your place in the life and mission of this church 
You're way more likely to become a part of the unit. You're way more likely to become a piece that can fit into what we're doing and into what God is doing through us in our world. This morning when you came in, you should have gotten a worship guide, and in that worship guide, I kind of want you to pull that out right now. In that worship guide were three inserts. I think we broke the record for number of inserts we put inside a worship guide this morning. Um, there were three inserts in there. One of the inserts says, find your circle on the top. One of your inserts says, find your circle on the top. This morning, we entered a season, a, a period of Lent on Wednesday. And Lent is a great time of commitment. This morning, I'm asking you, if you are not a part of a small group here at First Baptist New Orleans, if you're not a part of a small group at, at 1045 when you leave here, if you're not a part of a small group during the week or you're not a part of a women's small group during the week here at, here at the church, if you're not a part of a small group anywhere, you just come every Sunday and you're here in the rows with us, which we're glad for. But if you're not a part of a small group, I want to challenge you to give a small group a shot. I want to challenge you to give a shot. Maybe you've thought about it and you're just like, man, it hasn't worked out in my schedule. It hasn't been that convenient. Assembly is required. The Bible is clear about that. So I want to challenge you to give it a shot. You can fill out that form. And what you'll do is you'll fill out that form if you haven't been a part of a small group. When you fill out that form, you'll put it in the offering plate here in a few minutes. So Robert's going to come up here right now. The band's going to come up here and they're going to sing and they're going to give you a couple of minutes, just a time of commitment to think about, man, if you haven't been a part of a small group, to give you time to fill that out. Because what I want to do is after you fill that out, and you've turned that into offering plate, I want to have one of our small group leaders, one of our pastors and teachers to give you a call this week and say, hey, we would love to have you be a part of our small group this week. We would love to have you be a part of our small group this week. I would love to meet you after the service at 1045 and walk you in there and introduce you to some of the people. I want to take away any of the awkwardness that can some, sometimes be built into to small groups because we believe that you need to be a part of one of these groups. You need to move from rows to circles. If, if you're here this morning and you're already a part of a small group, I want you just to spend a few minutes praying, praying for your small group, praying for your commitment to your small group. Maybe you're here and you've been a part of a small group, but, but you've just kind of been on the fringes and you show up maybe once every three weeks and you're like, man, I've never really been able to plug in. Evaluate your own personal commitment. Take this time to think about, man, how could God use me if I was a part of a small group? We're going to take a couple of minutes and do that and you can just remain seating while they're playing and then we're going to have an invitation. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have given us all of these pieces in this room. God, they're so diverse and they can do so many different things. God, we thank you that you've given us all the tools to put these things together, to put this church together, to build us into a unit that goes out and that shapes our world, that changes our culture, that brings you glory. God, we ask that you would just help us get over our fear of being a part of a small group or get over the inconvenience that it takes because it is inconvenient. Lord, we admit that. God, help us to be committed to what you're doing here at First Baptist New Orleans. Help us to see your great calling on our lives. We love you and we thank you for, for who you are and for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.